Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I'm your host, Mark Yakano, and this podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the world's global leader in legal recruitment. I'm here today with a very special guest, Dr. Aaron Reeves, who's both an attorney and a sociologist. She has expertise in both diversity and inclusion. She's the author of several books, including One Size Never Fits All, which is a guide for business development strategies for women and for men too. The Next IQ, The Next Level of Intelligence for 21st Century Leaders, and Smarter Than a Why, Winning Against Liars Without Losing Your Mind. So, Dr. Reeves, if you'd like to introduce yourself to the audience and share a little bit about your background, I'm sure they would be interested, as am I. Thank you so much, Mark, and please do call me Erin. Uh, yes, as you already suggested, I am a lawyer in recovery. I practiced for many years. Um, I also have uh, my doctorate in sociology, and my passion has always been trying to better understand how we can work better together and what are the ways in which we come into workplaces and feel compromised or can't live up to our full potential and what are ways in which we come into workplaces and really shine and thrive. So um, my firm, Nexions, has been around 20 years. We actually turned 20 this year. And for 20 years, um, we've been researching these types of issues in workplaces to really make sure that all types of differences are addressed so we can really include them. Um, and we also do consulting, right? So I do a lot of um, presentations and trainings, and as you mentioned, um, also do write uh, books that sort of capture the research and are very practical ways to understand um, these types of issues in the workplace and apply strategies to make them better. Thank you for that. Uh, You have certainly created a very significant body of work on ways in which people can work better, ways in which people can embrace their differences, and ways in which um, a more inclusive environment can create to a better workplace. Now, I came across you when I was doing my research and reading as we were designing this podcast, and you were quoted in, in a number of articles on some of the issues related to what's been called a mental health crisis in the legal profession. Mm-hmm. And from from reading your body of work, that's a little bit of a paradigm shift in, in, in your focus. And I was curious how you got into that, that topic, which is crucial to our profession, but is, um, and I think ties together with diversity and inclusion and collaboration. But I'm curious what led you to to start looking at that issue, the mental health issue. Sure. You know, I think um, if you really think about it right, um, mental health has been a part of inclusion from day one because when we talk about being different in workplaces, we always talk about, you know, we have for many, many years talked about how to include people. What we haven't talked about is the cost to people when you don't feel included. What is the physical cost? What is the psychological cost? What is the emotional cost of not being included? And I think we've sort of papered over a lot of that emotional stuff. So we talk about attrition, right? We say, well, 
we lose women at a higher rate than um, than men, or we lose minorities, racial ethnic minorities at a higher rate, and we lose people in the LGBTQ community at a higher rate than we lose people um, who are heterosexual. And what we don't say is when those people are being lost, right, which is a great euphemism, when those people are leaving, are they leaving with a smile on their face? Absolutely not. They're leaving heartbroken. They're leaving stressed out. They're leaving um, a lot of times in pieces. Their, their confidence has been shattered because of the way they've been treated in the workplace. So underneath this concept of inclusion, kind of the underbelly of it, has always been about uh, the mental cost, the mental wellness, um, the mental experience, the psychological experience um, of not being included or sometimes even being harassed or being discriminated against and being actively excluded and all of that. So it's been something that has, I've been interested in for, for two decades, but recently in the last year, um, uh, I would say last 15 months, um, we've had uh, several clients um, where doing other types of work for them, um, suddenly it's been brought to our attention that there was a suicide of a lawyer. Um, everything from a partner who's committed suicide to um, our latest <clears throat> client, a very young associate who committed suicide. And sort of that first time we heard about, you know, a partner committing suicide, it was obviously with deep sadness, with shock, um, and just as a human being, um, just reaching out to people in the, you know, in the client and saying, are you okay, what can I do to help, et cetera. The second one, still shock, still compassion, still tears. That third one, uh, which was very early this year, um, suddenly kind of the researcher light went on too. Um, and so I'm experiencing these tragedies and trying to consult people I know who, who know these people from a human perspective, but then the researcher side of me kicking in saying, well, wait a minute, right? Um, more than two is we, we suddenly are maybe looking at a pattern that we need to get our arms around. Um, so this year especially, um, I've really kind of jumped into trying to understand wellness gener just generally, but also this intersection between wellness and inclusion. And one of the primary intersections of wellness and inclusion being inc wellness and generational inclusion um, and the impact of generational differences on young people, young attorneys especially, and what that's doing um, in terms of mental wellness and um, just psychological wellness because Right when we when we see suicide rates going up in the legal profession, and this is happening all across the profession, um, we've got to focus more on this issue urgently. I um, I'm fascinated by your observation because often the narrative around diversity inclusion is framed on the loss of opportunity to matriculate or excel or mm -hmm. have the advantages of success. But I don't think we've really traditionally thought about it as, in addition to the deprivation of opportunity, there's a deprivation of self-esteem and yep. pos positive imaging 
about yourself and, and, and where you fit in that ecosystem. And, and, and I frankly never thought of it that way, but it makes when you when you say it and you pull back the pull off the wallpaper, it makes perfect sense. Right. And, you know, I had a statistics teacher um, who once told me when I was doing my Ph.D., um, the statistics are human beings with the tears wiped off, right? And when we look at statistics, um, it is, I think, every statistic that we see and we throw around statistics around differences and not feeling included and people not, you know, um, reaching their potential in the workplace. And every single one of those statistical categories has human beings in it, people who are high achievers, who came out of law school, um, ready to take over the world and got into the workplace and could not get the work that they wanted, um, weren't getting invited to lunch as their peers. And the, uh, there's a lot of different issues, everything from, you know, um, code switching, how when you are different, you have to go back and forth between different identities and workplaces. Um, Kenji, um, Kenji's work on covering um, the psychological impact of having to cover who you are in order to fit in, um, imposter syndrome um, that women face more than men. There's so many things, and we've created these beautiful little euphemisms for them, right? Like imposter syndrome, like, yes, do you suffer from imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome is about walking into work every single day and not feeling like you belong. And the tremendous amount of cognitive and psychological work you have to do to balance that and deal with that and then actually do this very, very stressful work that we do in the legal profession. So the the power of the pain behind it and um, the um, just the distress and what people have to do to deal with the stress and distress and pain and all of that, I think, is 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 urgent, is upon our doorstep for us to deal with. And I'm so excited to to see people like you doing podcasts like this that are uh, making this issue the center of the conversation and not um, some sort of fifth or sixth layer of a conversation. I love the point you just made about when you come to work and you have to be someone else. And I mean, sharing my own experience, I was in a very corrosive and coercive work environment where I was trying to conform to the leadership style of a leader who had a leadership style that wasn't really consistent with my value system. And the psychological toll that it took was enormous. And one of the things when I came to Major Lindsay was taking a long time to understand the culture. And it was really odd as I was in a firm where I could be my authentic self. It was like every day was a tentative step forward. Can I really be me? Will they really accept me as me? And, and the fascinating thing was that MLA is incredibly great that way. But the recovery period from being in a corrosive environment, it's not just about these folks who couldn't be themselves or had to put on this mask every day leaving. It's about the fact that there's a halo effect once they leave, that even when they get into a great environment like I was fortunate to do, it takes a long time to recover from that corrosive experience where you're constantly trying to speak in a different voice. 
Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's like any um, psychological distress that we suffer, right? I mean, we talk a lot about PTSD um, in a clinical sense and PTSD if you're a sexual assault survivor, um, a domestic abuse survivor, um, you know, a a veteran of of war. Um, But PTSD has a huge spectrum. Um, And yes, the sort of the clinical manifestations of PTSD do require um, pretty intensive therapeutic interventions um, and sometimes even medical interventions. But sort of the lower side, right, sort of if you think of left to right with right being super intense, that left side of PTSD is not um, um, is not what we talk about in the mainstream. It's what you just talked about. It's when people and you use the word corrosive, which I love. I mean, not obviously, it's not a good word, but it, I love it to describe this because it does when something corrodes away at your self-esteem and something corrodes away at your sense of balance, when something corrodes away at your sense of self, it, there is a trauma there. There's a trauma to your cognition. There's a trauma to your psychological wellness. And there needs to be a healing process. There is a recovery process. And it's not just about saying, oh, okay, this was a corrosive environment. I'm out of there. Now I'm in this new environment and I'm brand new. You have to heal. And everybody's different and everybody experiences different things. And healing takes, you know, lots of different time periods for different people. And um, in my in my latest book, Smarter Than a Lie, um, I actually talk about one client um, that my team and I worked with who was very, who was a very corrosive individual. Um, and the level of um, lying that, that we were experiencing and the psychological kind of trauma that we experienced working with this client, after we worked with this client, it wasn't just about saying, okay, we're done with that, let's move on. We had to heal. There were so many behaviors in myself and my team where we were like, oh, my God, what if that happens again? You know, we need to do this, and we need to be careful. And there was just this constant anxiety. And um, we were doing work in ways to avoid what we had experienced with this person as opposed to ways in which we actually want it to work. So it probably took us a good six to eight months to just recover from one client um, who treated us pretty corrosively. So it it takes a long time to heal, and I think we need to tell people that. And no matter how strong you are, it's going to take time to heal sometimes coming out of these environments, and you need to be very deliberate about that mental wellness and take responsibility for it for yourself and ask for what you need so that you get what you need so that you are, in fact, healing. One of the issues you you touched on, you know, a few minutes ago, and I will, I will tell you that the statistics took me by surprise when I dug into the ABA um, Hazelton uh, study is that one of the most at-risk groups for depression, anxiety, substance abuse are lawyers who have been practicing less than 10 years. Yep. And I I, I was actually surprised at that statistic because my, my original sort of motivation for starting to dig into this topic is I wanted to look at the lack of 
resources for men in their 50s who are dealing with these issues and, and the stigma. But what happened is, as I dug into the research, I realized that there is a much younger population that is that is at risk. And I guess my question is, what are the ways in which people in that demographic who don't have the benefit of as much life experience, who may not have a spouse or a partner or adult children or longtime peers who can be sort of that support network, how do they begin the process of extricating themselves from a corrosive situation and what are the ways in which in resources in which they can begin to heal because the more i thought about it the more i realized is we have a generation of millennials who are really special in my view i am a little biased because my kids are both millennials um (laughs) (laughs) and i think they're extraordinary i think a lot of the stereotypes are unfair and in reality as you as you stop looking at them as a statistic and you start looking at them as people it gets a different story but the fact is is that that while they have a lot of these great qualities they're also dealing with as they go in a profession like legal with a lot of generational values that aren't theirs and they have to figure out how to navigate through that. It's a different form of diversity and inclusion, you know, this demographic lack of diversity and leadership. And I'm just curious what your thoughts, if we could explore that a little bit. I just rambled and hopefully made a little bit of sense. (laughs) You didn't at all. Um, One of the um, types of differences we study is generational differences. And I I'm very cautious when I talk about generational differences because so much of what is written about boomers and millennials is just such BS. Um, it isn't, there's a lot more that we have in common um, than what we have different. But just like with race, just like with gender, our experiences um, create our identities. And the younger people today, and I'm a parent to two Gen Zs, right, the ones coming after the millennials, and their experiences are so different um, than mine. When they are teenagers today, and their experiences as teenagers today are so different than my experiences as a teenager, that if I approached parenting from the perspective of how I was parented as a teenager, I would miss the entire boat, right, with my kids. I would uh, make so many mistakes. So I have to start as a parent with first understanding what are my children's experiences today and then use my insights as an adult and my responsibility for them to then guide them given what they have to do today. We come to that understanding as parents sometimes easier, but workplaces need to follow that same model. You can't say, and I hear so many um, seasoned lawyers doing this, this is just what I experienced as an associate, right? And I say to them, um, I was just talking to a partner about this two days ago where he said, Erin, this is exactly how I was treated as an associate 20 years ago. Um, and I said, do you drive the same car that you drove 20 years ago? He said, of course not. And I was like, well, why would you use the same practices, right? You didn't have a cell phone 20 years ago. Nobody was emailing you documents 20 years ago. Um, you didn't do video conferencing 20 years ago. So 
if we go 20 years in 2000, if you remember, we were still dealing with the were all of our computers going to shut down, right? Um, at, at the turn of the century, kind of drama back then. It you can't say this is how I was treated. This is what I experienced. Therefore, I'm going to have the same expectations. And I think what's happening in workplaces is you have seasoned people who are using a paradigm of management and paradigm of leadership and a paradigm of working that is 20 years old, maybe 30 years old. And young attorneys today are coming in, um, and the just the sheer pressure of always being on, always being on, is very different than what it felt like being on 25 years ago when I when I took this law, for example. 25 years ago, always being on did not mean that you woke up in the morning and looked at a device that had email from other people on it. Always being on meant, sure, if there was an emergency, someone called you at home. But it was a big deal, and if they called you, they left you a voice message on an answering machine. It wasn't, you know, like sort of that immediacy of responsiveness. So I think young people today are trying to be responsive with current technology but in an old mindset and it's driving them insane it is distressing them it is not healthy and we're causing a level of stress but we're not helping people even try to understand who they want to be as professionals right like we're just branding them as not wanting to work hard and not being committed um, instead of saying, what does working hard look like today? What does turning off um, your device look like today? And the older you are when technology was introduced into your life, the more you remember what life was like without it so you can have a sense of balance, right? You know what it's like to turn it off. You know what it's like to... Um, understand life in a way that isn't always filtered through technology, but millennials don't. And so if instead of understanding them, if we just brand them and label them as not working hard and it being entitled and asking for too much balance and being wrong for talking about flexibility, if we do that, um, we, are, we are very complicit um, in high levels of anxiety and depression um, and stress that um, that that generation is facing, not because they're not brilliant, not because they're not hard workers, but because we're expecting them to work in old ways but with new technology and we're literally stressing them so out you, with the conflict. Can you share, um, before we, 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 we part for the day, can you share some of the advice and, and, and strategies you're you're trying to help firms implement as they bring you in. And I mean, the interesting thing, and it's not interesting in in, in a good way, really, is some of the firms, <laughs> some of the firms that you're working with, you're working with in the a aftermath of a real human tragedy, as yep. opposed to being hired sort of prophylactically to address an issue that folks are worried about. But I think in some ways that, that makes what the work you're doing more acute. 
and coming into those clients after they've experienced those unfortunate events of losing a losing a colleague through self-inflicted um, harm, what are some of the things you're you're talking to firms about doing to make sure that doesn't happen again and to change that corrosive, uh, isolating, always-on culture? Sure, and. I just want to be clear that, you know, um, I'm not suggesting at all that it's only the stress at work, right, that causes some of these tragedies. It is other things and the stress at work sort of on top of it. But we start there, that we um, are, you know, working with clients to first create an open environment where if somebody is suffering from something else or experiencing something else like a dissolution in a marriage, um, like a death of a family member, um, like their own maybe, you know, mental illness in any way, that there is space to talk about it, right? Like we we have this incredible notion in the legal profession that lawyers are so brilliant that there's nothing wrong with them ever, right? And so creating space to talk about some of these things is very critical because one of the things that pushes people over the edge is having to pretend like nothing is wrong when your life may be falling apart um, around you. Um, the second is communication. Um, one of the things we work with a lot is having senior attorneys and younger attorneys sit together and say, what are my expectations of responsiveness? And having space for the younger attorney to say, okay, this is what I can do. I would like some control over my experience in this way so that you're not just working off of unwritten rules and unset expectations. And I have found that when people sit down and talk about what is expected, what can be done, they almost always arrive at something that works for both of them, but the communication isn't occurring. So just like with anything else dealing with human beings, talking about it, saying, look, responsive looks this way to me, I need you to be responsive, and the other person saying, okay, can I be responsive in this way so that I am meeting your needs, but I'm also, you know, able to do this, this, and this in order to care for myself. Having more of those conversations between supervisors and attorneys that they're supervising, I think, is critical. Well, interestingly enough, I was in the airport yesterday, and I was listening to two lawyers talk. I think one was probably in his 50s, and one was was an, a, an associate, quote, a young associate. And they were talking about setting boundaries. And this associate w w said that when he got to the firm, he did, his, he did his research to make sure it was a firm that believed in collegiality and community. And he made clear his expectation that he was going to be home for dinner most nights unless there was an emergency, and that he would be back on. And then I heard him say, if I weren't older, a little older, and having been a military veteran, I probably wouldn't have felt as comfortable having that conversation. But having been deployed, having been away from my family, this was sort of a non-starter. I'll be on later, I'll be on early, but most nights I want to be home for dinner with my family. And I thought it was fascinating, one, because we started this podcast, but two, because he made that one comment. If I was if I didn't have this level of experience and wasn't three or four years older than my, you know, peers in the same associate class, I might not have been as comfortable having that that conversation. 
And the way he described it is once he set his expectations and there was an agreement, well, yeah, you really can't do your work in this way, that it worked it worked very well. And, and so it's fascinating what you just said and, and what I just heard anecdotally. Absolutely. And I do think that it is um, important for partners to take on that responsibility to have that conversation, to at least initiate the conversation precisely because of the conversation that you're recalling, right? That it, you, a lot of associates don't have that background, don't have the ability to raise these. I do think it's completely, you know, it, partners have to raise it. I think law firms have to create the responsibility for partners to raise it. Corporations have to create the responsibility for senior attorneys to raise it, and same thing in government and not-for-profit, et cetera. Um, it's important for judges to have that conversation with their clerks. I think just across the board, if you are in a position that is senior to someone, it is incumbent upon you to have that conversation. And just to kind of bring it full circle, you know, when we're dealing with these stresses of always being on, and then you add the stress of being different, right? You add the stress of being a racial ethnic minority, um, a woman in a practice that is primarily men, you're talking about a compounding level of distress that is not okay for any of us to expect anyone else to endure in a work environment. Um, so it, you know, encouraging firms, encouraging workplaces to, to have these conversations. And the one other thing that we work a lot with is really encouraging workplaces to think about their orientations of new attorneys and onboarding of new attorneys as sort of systemic places and structural places where they can actually embed a lot of these conversations and embed expectations and have um, as part of orientations and onboarding processes, have senior lawyers come in so these conversations can occur on the front end. We've worked with a lot of law schools where we've tried to get this into play in law school orientations so that students are thinking about it right before they start law school, not after their first finals when they realized that they've been too stressed out to really fully maximize their potential. So having these conversations, embedding them into systemic processes, um, and then, you know, just as a last note, just being kinder to each other. And that sounds so silly, but um, just listening, paying attention, noticing when someone looks tired um, and saying, hey, are you okay? Um, being just a voice of kindness in a world that I think is starved of kindness in a lot of different ways um, can be the difference for someone who is stressed out, um, who makes a tragic decision versus doesn't make a tragic decision. So I think that's something we can all do is just step up our kindness a little bit as well. Well, that is a perfect way to end our time together to, to, to stress that small acts of kindness can have a tremendous impact on people and that compassion and awareness and empathy are as much a part of the solution as having a program or having a structure or creating other resources just being good humans can go a long way towards eliminating a corrosive environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so appreciative that you had me on to, um, to have this conversation with you. It's such an important conversation, and I look forward to hearing the rest of the podcast on this. Erin, thank you so much for 
being on with us and for taking the time and for your great work and for adding a humanity to the to, to the to the look at this issue in, in a way that goes beyond statistics and um, just tragic stories, but but gives a very human human view of how we begin to address these issues. I'm most appreciative, as is Major Lindsay in Africa, for your time. This has been Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession. My guest today has been Dr. Erin Reeves. Uh, we are grateful for her participation, and we hope you will find this conversation enlightening. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.